Hello and welcome to another episode of our podcast from the Blue Earth Summit, a movement and community driving positive action for our natural world. In this series, we'll bring you some of the highlight talks and conversations from our first summit in Bristol in October 2021. In this episode, Forging a Trail for Positive Change. The art of adventure is powerful, and telling stories of those adventures from around the globe can help inspire, enlighten and educate audiences on the plight of our planet. Capturing wildlife and the natural world in full flow provides engaging content, yet it's the message that's significant and the impact it has on people to act on that message. Documenting the climate crisis is a bittersweet thing, whether it be capturing treatment of fish in salmon farms or understanding the importance of habitat for leopard seals. Travel to far-flung locations gives us a window on the brilliance of the natural world, but also on the horror of environmental change. Connecting a story to an audience can bring out an emotional reaction, but the end goal is to evoke action. Adventurer, filmmaker and writer Jenny Tuff was joined by Lizzie Daly, wildlife presenter and biologist, Joe Royal, adventurer and CEO of Common Seas tackling marine plastic pollution, and Ian Finch, former Royal Marine, adventure photographer and expedition guide. Today for our workshop, we're going to look at purposeful adventure and storytelling, and so we've got some amazing purposeful adventurers and storytellers with us. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Lizzie Daly. <laughs> Hello. Um, I kind of wanted to start by giving you a bit of background, and specifically today, I'd be really keen just to talk about, I guess, the power of um, change and positive impacts with wildlife film, as that's my background. But um, I also wanted to just touch on how I feel that right now it's a very exciting time for this new generation of, of young filmmakers, especially at this time with COP26 coming up in November in Glasgow and obviously the climate crisis that we are in, wildlife filmmaking industry is is changing, um, which is really, really exciting for reasons I'll I'll go on to. But I thought I'd share some stories with you about the work that I've done, um, projects I've worked on. Yes, my my background um, is actually as a scientist. So I'm working at Swansea University using tags called triaccelerometers to look at fine scale behavior of various different species. And a few years ago, I spent three months in Kenya on the ground to learn about the issues of conflict between people and elephants there, largely with fence breaking and crop breeding in the area. And um, that was what really kind of caught my attention. I've always wanted to work with elephants, but to be able to apply that with these tags to learn about their movements and behavior is kind of an absolute dream of mine. But uh, the conservation applications of that is so, so important because what's very clear is kind of putting my science head on. It's not just about learning cool things about behaviours. And actually in wildlife film, it's the same. You can't just go and document a cool behaviour anymore. There's so much more than that. And the the role of wildlife film and the purpose of it, we'll talk about purpose, um, is so much greater. And so that's kind of something I try to put in my scientific world as well as my wildlife film world. Um, for those who don't know, this is a giant barrel jellyfish. Um, has anyone seen the scene on Father Ted's where it's like the cow's really far away and really close? Has anyone seen that? It's just me. Um, this was a giant jellyfish. It was as big as me. It is quite close to the camera, so it looks three times bigger than me. Um, but this was a giant jellyfish we came across in Cornwall and uh, documented this as part of a week called Wild Ocean Week in the UK. I'm really passionate about celebrating what's on our coasts, doorstep wildlife. And so the, from the outset, um, myself and a good friend and camera op, Shark Mandan, 
that's his real name, um, went around the UK to document, you know, seals and minke whales and orca and everything we could in the space of a week. And the end of the week, we came across this giant jellyfish. And in some ways, this was a really great thing because ultimately the aim of it was to inspire people and show people that we've got epic things on our coastlines. So it did that. But actually, uh, this could have just been a big story about a jellyfish and that's, that's it. But we kind of wanted it to be more than that. So we got in touch with um, scientists at Swansea University. There's a jellyfish expert. That's an actual job. And uh, we asked him to tell us about the jellyfish around our coast. And it turns out there's actually so much we don't know about our jellyfish species. They're not just giant blobs of jelly that float in the ocean. They have deliberate movements. They walk, they, they move up and down water columns. They travel to feed in various parts of our ocean and our seas. So off the back of this encounter, we um, set up the Great British Jelly Watch Weekend, which is an annual citizen science weekend where people can go out and document the jellyfish on the beaches to learn more about what we have on our sea, in our seas, on our coasts, and how this is changing over time as part of a climate story. And the reason I wanted to share that with you, I think, is because this feeds into the narrative that storytelling has intrinsic properties of course to inspire and educate but actually it's what you do with that story and how you can kind of expand that to have impact and real outreach to give people something to take away and to act on with that film or with that project um, and that was something we really tried to aim to do with this billion pound fish was a film that we made a, f a few years ago about the salmon farming industry I think it was 2016, um, I learned about the salmon farming industry in Scotland and how they shoot seals at salmon farms. They have licenses to shoot seals. And um, that was just part of uh, an ongoing problem where seals come in and eat the, eat the salmon that's actually in these pens. This was quite shocking for me when I found out that this is actually a reality on our coast. So I set out to make um, uh, a film about exactly that. And Billion Pound Fish was the second film to showcase the various different impacts of salmon farming that we, that we have here in the UK and across the world, because it's a global industry. Um, and again, with this, it was very much uh, an impact film where you can tell a story, but actually have a real purpose in where you want that story and narrative to sit. So for, for us, it was really important that it went to the right target audience. So in, in, um, in this occasion, it was to the Scottish government and to salmon farms themselves. So... We made this film. It caught the attention of the Salmon Farm Company, um, who actually ended up getting fined, and, um, and that salmon farm was moved because the seal that was featured in the documentary we made, which had washed up dead on the beach and had a supposed uh, shotgun wound in its head um, near a proposed salmon farm, was actually evidence of illegal shooting of seals. And this is happen happening on our coasts. And I think a lot of people don't even realise that now, that... That is, that is a reality that we have on our coast. So while it did make a very small ripple in the salmon farming industry and I guess getting the attention of the Scottish government, there's so much more to be done when it comes to salmon farming as a global story. Um, so that's kind of like ongoing work and a project that while I, I, it was a really great kind of impact story for, for me, learning how to kind of take that documentary or that piece one step further, there's still so much so much to be done in that regard um and of course you know i mentioned at the beginning that we are absolutely in a in a climate crisis right now this is um a really pivotal point i think especially in, in wildlife film as we move away from just telling 
great stories about natural world to actually documenting the impact of it. So um, February 2020, um, I had the absolute privilege of being in Antarctica in South Georgia. This place is utterly wild. You know, so many people are brought to this part of the world for its wonder, you know, to follow in the footsteps of Shackleton, to see the incredible wildlife there. South Georgia was absolutely no exception. The smell of the king penguins, the 450,000 breeding pairs, it certainly wakes you up, that's for sure. Um, the waters, there's so many positive stories about this part of the world. The waters are rich with whales. There's incredible activity. You know, we saw type A orca, which are orca that hunt individual whales. We saw a pod trying to hunt a humpback whale. Um, just an incredible place. This was um, the first day that we were in Antarctica and this beach was just full of gentoo penguins um, going kind of into the ocean as they started to fledge, finishing their molt. And on the edge of that beach was a uh, giant leopard seal. Um, I was there filming for BBC Earth and writing for BBC Wildlife magazine. And one of the stories was featuring leopard seals and how they're such incredible animals, but they're very misunderstood and labelled as the big angry predators with reptilian heads. But actually, they're so charismatic and just a fantastic, incredible species to watch. We saw them kind of hauled out on ice. We saw them hunting gentoo penguins, much to the horror of some of the people on the boat. But it was... Um, absolute brilliancy uh and yeah they're just they're just a fantastic species that was brilliant experience to um to be there but of course there's that paradox again where you're in this wonderfully wild place um but i was also there at a time where the world's hottest or antarctica's hottest temperature was ever recorded at 18.3 degrees celsius um huge impact of sea ice loss so for species like leopard seals that's so important because they're what's called ice obligate which means they breed only on ice so if there's less ice then there's evidence already that there's changing ecology and distribution of this species due to loss of sea ice and of course antarctic krill which forms the foundation of so much of the life in this region for the whales the penguins the leopard seals is also declining and has been since the 1970s. And they think, of course, this is largely due to the changing climates there. So it's kind of this, this paradoxical, paradoxical world when you go into these regions to explore. And I think in the sense of wildlife film and that space, that's almost like the new frontier, if you like, the new kind of goal in purpose in making these films is you absolutely have a responsibility to translate the realities of the state of our planet and take that forward in whatever story you are telling as well as documenting all the brilliant species and habitats you have to take that forward and actually report the climate crisis that is that is actually here i just wanted to finish with these two projects because you know we we talk about the purpose of wildlife film but actually a lot of it comes down to people and one of the things I've, i love to do is um is celebrate the communities that are really taking conservation into their own hands and it's an absolute privilege that uh Last month, um, I went up to Shetland, and how many of you know there's orca in UK waters? Okay, most of you, great. <laughs> yeah, I mean, lots of uh, the general public aren't aware that we have orca in our waters, and there's a community up in Shetland um, that are doing brilliant things to help monitor and better understand the pods that we have here. These are the 27s. They're a very well-known pod of orca. We filmed this literally standing on the edge of that um, the cliff that you see there. They're actually flushing out a, a poor seal at the moment that's hiding in the kelp. And they went on to actually hunt and successfully feed on that seal. But more importantly, 
we know so much about these orca is because, because of this community of people that are documenting them, their every move, they're monitoring them. There's a group of activists and scientists and photographers and filmmakers that have come together and almost taken conservation into their own hands. And it's so inspiring to see and to learn about their work and how they are actually saying, right, we are proud of our seas, we know what we have in our waters, but we want to protect it. And to do that, we need long-term monitoring and constant um, understanding of how our seas are changing. And that's, you know, that's not a, a, an official... Uh, body that's literally a Facebook group of people who've come together and gone this is what we need to do to protect them which is so awesome and I just wanted to finish on um, kind of what's coming next what we're working on which I'm really excited about this is a bearded vulture um, his name's Kazajo and with him is Alex um, and Alex has been working with this bird for a number of years so the bearded vulture was pushed to almost extinction about 100 years ago. And in the Alps and the Pyrenees Mountains, the Vulture Conservation Foundation have come together to kind of really help bring them back um, so successfully that actually now they are looking healthy across Europe. But obviously it's an ongoing project. And Alex and Kazajo, um, so he's a really good foster bearded vulture. It basically sits every breeding season in the nest with Kazajo. Uh, looking after this egg and looking after a chick to help rear the chick as part of a breeding program. It's an incredible relationship that Alex has. And he's one of those individuals who literally came together as a community along with another gentleman called Dr. Hans Fry um, and said, we need to do something about the protection of this bird if we are to you know, have them in our future, our children's future, etc. Um, so we're making a film about the people and their relationship with these bearded vultures and um, how community conservation has a lot of power. And I think that also goes on to audiences as well. You make a wildlife film or a story, you have to give an audience a takeaway or an action or something to do off the back of that. Yeah, that's me done. <laughs> Thanks. I've got a question. Is, is there only one pod up there? Is that right? How many pods are actually up there? So I believe it's seven to eight pods in Shetland. Um, some are, so some move between Orkney, Shetland and the western coast of Scotland and others have actually been documented going from Iceland and then back to Scotland as well. And again, that information is uh, available from ID catalogues because people are going out taking pictures of the right orca, IDing them from Iceland to Scotland and back. So yeah, I mean, they're so accessible as well. We, all, we saw that from land. The whole film he made was documented from, from land. So, yeah. Um, there you are. It's me. Thank you so much. <laughs> Cheers. Yeah, thanks, guys. Thank you for being here, first of all. It's a real pleasure to be here, and thank you for that. Really insightful. Um, yeah, so my name is Ian Finch, as you can see on there. Um, I'm an expedition guide, so I lead expeditions in... Uh, certain areas of the world, usually remote places. Um, I mean, in that picture there is some real remote uh, place in Scotland. Um, but my main sort of focus is uh, Alaska and Canada and those kind of places. Um, and I have a real pure passion for native cultures, indigenous cultures and stuff like that. So I grew up um, in a household where I think that subject matter was subconsciously born. Um, uh, we had a, a cabinet in my mum and dad's house, and in that cabinet there was Native American arrowheads, there was Tibetan prayer wheels, there was all manner of artefacts from native groups or historical artefacts and stuff like that. There was also Inuit carvings that were on the wall that my dad had. Um, and 
when I sort of subconsciously took in all that information, I then gave that subject matter the, the sort of the, the, that was the idea of the expeditions that I wanted to do. I wanted to go and learn more about all that stuff that was in that cabinet. And now when actually when I go on my expeditions, I bring back items to put into that cabinet. And I think after some discussions with some people, that was like a, an idea to get closer to my dad, really, because we weren't the closest, me and my dad, etc. So I think that was kind of like a peace offering where I went to go and get those items of from um, Inuit people or Cherokee people and stuff like that. There was, there was a sort of a passage of information and a passage, a family passage of wisdom that was going from my dad through to me. Two of the sort of the main expeditions that I've done in recent years, this is just three photos that, that are from two of, those, or three, no, two of those expeditions. The one that really set the foundation for me and moving forward in my career, especially in photography and culture and the sort of the real narrative and the real stories that I wanted to tell was people that um, lived in remote places and that there was a social or a um, climate or a wildlife perspective that were, um, it was impacting the people. So the first real big journey that I did was to canoe, which is my my kind of discipline as such. I mean, Jenny's got cycling and running, and for me, it's really canoeing. Um, and re the reason why I chose the canoe is because that is the ancient mode of travel for the waterways of those regions where I truly, truly love. Um, and the, the idea of the, the 2,000-mile descent of the Yukon River was to actually build a canoe, a birch bark canoe, and paddle that 2,000 miles. But after sort of some research and that kind of thing, I realized that probably wasn't the best idea um, because I'd have actually had to repair it as I went. And, and over 2,000 miles, that's quite, quite a long distance. Um, so the real narrative of this story was the Yukon River, which is in sort of one part of Canada and mostly in Alaska, um, was the Chinook salmon. Uh, the Chinook salmon is, is basically the longest salmon run in the world that goes, I think, through Greenland, up through the mouth of the Yukon, and then they spawn in these tiny streams in the river. And the, and the Chinook salmon and the king salmon are the lifeblood of the people, historically the lifeblood of the people that live along the Yukon River. Um, and I really wanted to paddle the whole of that, the length of that river, meet the people, interview the people, and find out about what was actually happening to the salmon, because I'd heard lots of stories that the salmon were reducing in size, the, the amount of salmon that were coming up the river was a lot, lot less, um, and also the quality of the salmon was different. So this was the first time I'd actually, believe it or not, canoed. Um, my mum bought me four or five one-hour canoe lessons before I did this. And then I canoed the River Wye in Wales, which is 100 miles long with a friend of mine. And then I went out there, I put this team together, which was one, um, there two people from Montreal and Canada, another uh, photographer from Brooklyn who I'd been following. So we put this team together um, and then flew, strapped the canoes to a side of a plane um, and then flew to the source of a river, a source of that river, which was basically a lake. It was a tiny trickle that came off of a glacier. Um, and then we landed with this plane with the canoe strapped to the side of a plane. Um, and then took the canoes off, and then they left us in pretty remote part of British Columbia. Um, so if you try just to put into some sort of concept how far 2,000 miles is, if you were to start canoeing at the tip of Scotland, you'd finish in Romania. So it's, it's quite, quite a long way to canoe when you haven't got a huge amount of experience. Actually, to, to abbreviate on that, probably another two people had never been in a canoe before on that trip. So we had one person who was an actual expert, which is what, who the person who I really trusted on that trip. Logistically, he was like fantastic. Um, 
but the, the rest of us were pretty inexperienced. But the other two were a fantastic photographer, a filmmaker, and then myself, who was the kind of the passion behind the trip, the idea, the narrative, trying to steer the narrative as we went. And what we'd actually done was set up interviews with native groups along the way, certain individuals that were to do with uh, the environmental agency, fish and game, and then most of the people were actual native fishermen or fisherwomen who lived all the way along the river. So the actual trip, the Yukon trip, took us about three months of constant paddling. We probably had three days off throughout the whole journey. Um, and you'd think the, 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 the hardest part of that trip was probably the canoeing or the paddling, but it wasn't. It was probably grizzly bears, the, the having to deal with grizzlies, and also <clears throat> the human relationships, because also we put a team together where four people were thrown into two canoes and then just having to get on with each other, people you didn't really know, didn't really know, um, and have to, having to manage the leadership or manage the personalities, the likes, dislikes, weaknesses, strengths, etc. So I learned a lot on that trip about how to get on with people um, and how to manage people and how to lead in times of adversity. Um, but also, I think one of the main things I learned from that expedition was the fact that in these remote places, these are the places that are being hit by change the most, um, uh, climatically and also um, culturally and from a traditions perspective of these people. And there was probably a number of times on that trip where you're nearly brought to tears by listening to the people and finding out that their existence was based around the Chinook and the King Salmon that was flying up and down this river each year. They knew when the fish were coming, when they weren't coming because of um, overfishing out at sea, that was stopping the, the, the cream of the crop of the fish coming up those rivers. And then the people were being told by the wildlife fishing game that they now have to um, take certain fish at certain times of the day using a different, using a different type of net. So they couldn't catch the, catch the fish that historically they could catch and then put in their freezers for winter. So now they were being pushed into these small shops that were being set up within these native communities, which were then having processed food, um, alcohol in them and stuff like that. So you can see the fact that the, the commercial fishing was having out at sea was then changing the culture 2,000 miles up the river, which was really, really powerful to, uh, to hear from these people, which we photographed, which we interviewed these people. There's, an, there's a very short documentary on Amazon called Pull of the North, um, which was ultimately the expedition which then made it into Sidetracked magazine, um, which, yeah, it changed that, that journey did ultimately change my life. It changed my viewpoint of cultures in a modern world um, and what actually these people are doing to sustain their cultural sort of heritage and stuff like that. People are um, talking into dictaphones to record their language. They're writing um, dictionaries and all sorts of stuff like that to preserve what is left of these, these cultures. Um, yeah, and it was to totally a trip that changed my life. And some of the pictures, uh, I can't remember what volume it is of Sidetrack magazine, but there's some incredible pictures in, in that magazine. And then two years, uh, two years later, we uh, completed another journey. And actually, to go just to touch on both of these, it's, it's a, quite a sensitive subject for, uh, for a white person to tell a native story. So there's always something that I have to, and this comes into the, the storytelling aspects of things, where you always have to have this cultural sensitivity, this not just a sensitivity of building rapport with, with people, but asking the right questions, using the right terminology, using the right language. Um, but ultimately, I think 
one of the things I took away from doing trips like these that involve talking and telling a native story is the fact that you're just there willing to listen and you're there willing to tell the story of the people. And that is ultimately at the core of everything that I do and everything that I care about. So the second, second major trip that we did was um, 1,300 miles in the footsteps of the Cherokee people. So the reason we decided to tell that story was because um, in the 1800s, the Cherokee, which um, lived on the eastern side of the US, they were forcibly moved into Indian Territory, which was in now common uh, modern-day Oklahoma. So they were forced to move that distance on foot at a moment's notice with only literally the belongings that they had on them. So they were forced to move that distance. So we found the actual um, route that the, the Cherokee people were forced to walk, and then um, we retraced that route and then walked it, canoed it, and then walked it again. Um, but one of the major things for this journey was the fact that we had to seek permission from the Cherokee Nation before we did it as a sign of respect. Um, and we had to cross the Great Smoky Mountains on foot, so we crossed from one side to the other because the Great Smoky Mountains was basically where the Cherokee people lived for thousands and thousands of years. Um, so we crossed that on foot where we had set up uh, all of our, our equipment in canoes again. Um, and then we canoed another thousand miles, which was uh, a route that in, uh, encapsulated the Tennessee River, the Ohio River, and the Mississippi River, which was the actual route that the Cherokee people were, were taken on boats. They were taken um, on a steamer, a big paddle steamer that you think you know from old films, but they're actually pulled on flatbed boats behind and <clears throat> given bacon grease and flour and bread to eat. During, during the winter, and which was the Cherokee actually were forced to walk and undertake this journey in winter. And the reason why this was just a really powerful story was 13,000 Cherokee were taken from this area um, and 8,000 died en route to Indian Territory. Um, and women and children, um, if they died, they were left on the side of, of, of this, this trail. If women were pregnant and they had children, if the women died during pregnancy, the child was taken and the women were left. So there was a huge sensitivity to this story and the fact that two white guys were on this journey and trying to tell this story was a very, very, very difficult story to navigate. Um, but we just did that through respect, um, a lot, a lot of research, and also along the route, talking to a lot of people and, and, and getting the right information and also telling the, pe the Cherokee people along the route why we were doing it and why we were passionate about it and why we cared about the story because they, in some respects, they feel like a forgotten people in America, even though they're, they're, they're the largest Native American nation and the most powerful Native American nation in, in, in that region. One of the things that we wanted to do just to finish up on this was to finish the journey with Cherokee people. So my idea was to complete the whole journey, to meet Cherokee people along the way, to interview them, to, 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 to have really powerful photography, to, to do the right storytelling, but to finish the last part of the trip with Cherokee youths and an elder. So uh, towards the end of the journey, we had a contact in the Cherokee Nation and the, the two Cherokee brothers and an elder who had links to the original Cherokee people who made the journey. Um, we met them at a gas station on the side of a road. Um, and then we walked the last six miles with them, which was a really powerful end to the journey. It's something we really wanted to do because we wanted to ask them questions. We wanted to give them the framework to ask us questions. And then we wanted to literally walk across the finish line with, with some Cherokee people to just 
um, so give it as a sign of respect um, and also to hear what they had to say and to also, especially for the younger generation, the two Cherokee brothers, which we've now become very good friends with, um, to get, almost to get their blessing, I think, to say that what we were doing was right, the story that we were telling had some validity and some weight to it, and also to share their story with the Western, or, or sorry, European world. Um, and yeah, and it, we finished in the, the Cherokee Heritage Center, which is the Cherokee Museum. Um, and then we spent a week with Cherokee people, living with them in their homes, eating with them, um, going to powwows, filming the powwows, doing photography uh, with them talking to them, laughing with them, drinking with them, uh, smoking with them, drumming with them. So they invited us to drum in sessions, which are a sacred experience, and we drummed with them and sang with them, um, which was just, you know, that's an experience that you can't really, you, you can't even really put money on. Um, so yeah, that's, that's just two of, two trips of many that I've done and soon to be doing where, um, I really care about the native story and telling a true native story. And the, 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 the journey and the adventure is just the vehicle for the story. And that's, that's all it is. So, yeah. So one thing that really struck me listening to the two of you, and when you're talking about the Chinook salmon, it reminded me of a recent sidetrack story that we had from a wildlife photographer in the Yukon who was covering the grizzly bears. So he wanted to go out and shoot the grizz, like photography shoot the grizzly bears. Um, which immediately, I mean, he was shooting them where they were hunting for salmon. So he, as someone who was interested in the bears and wanted to learn about the bears, he kind of instantly couldn't untie that from the story of the salmon, which is completely connected to the human culture. First living in the Yukon, the, the First Nations people who still have a right to hunt the salmon and live in their traditional way as much as Canada tries to support them. And of course, upstream where the salmon are, salmon are being farmed. So my question with the two of you, you focusing a lot on culture and you focusing a lot on wildlife, these in a storytelling context and maybe the documentaries that we're all used to seeing on TV, they, those are really separate topics and it's very rare to see them intertwined. And I'm wondering how you guys see the human impact, human conservation and wildlife conservation. Should they intertwine more? How do they intertwine? What have you come across? Um, yeah, I think it's a really good question and a really important area because actually you're right. A lot of natural history filmmaking has been all about just nature and we even we as a society consider ourselves separate to nature and is absolutely not true um i do think that at the, at the moment there's definitely a need and a push for more human-based stories with wildlife and we are seeing that and i think the beauty of of this digital space of of this kind of growth of people going out and telling stories, even yourself, Ian, you know, talking then, it's very much intrinsically linked with the people and the nature and, and salmon and wildlife all around. And we're seeing more and more of that. Um, in big broadcasting programmes as well, I think everyone's seen the end of it when you get to learn about how they actually make that documentary and the, the, the ups and the downs that comes with it. And I think that if we work more towards actually having kind of human stories in there then it will actually benefit conservation i mean in terms of um the when i went out to write my phd proposal with elephants i think i was very naive i think going in and being honest because i always wanted to work on elephants and i came back after that three-month trip being like elephant conservation isn't about the elephants at all it's about the people who are neighboring with these elephants um, day in, day out. Um, one farmer in particular, when I was there, spent some time getting to know, and she was having her crops raided 
every night by two particular bull elephants who are typically the ones that go in and actually, you know, are the persistent problem elephants. Um, and every every day she'd be out there with her family, her brother, her 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 sons, and she would be replanting all the crops that are being raided. And um, that for me, I think, was quite an important turning point personally to be like, right, conservation is very much about people. And um, yeah, I think it will change definitely in the natural history space. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, wildlife and the people is intrinsically connected and in intertwined. Um, without the wildlife, you know, th th there's, from what I especially saw within in Alaska, just that relationship between the salmon and the people was just, there's a spiritual connection between both, both of those sort of subject matters. And the people would write about them, they would sing about them. There was one, there was one time when we, inter we interviewed a guy, a fisherman called Paul, and he sang a song and he drummed a song in front of us as we were filming him about singing to the salmon to come to the people, come to the people. Yeah, and you're just sitting there filming it and you're just almost you know, being drawn to tears because it's just such a powerful experience. And it's only then do you see the, the power and the relationship between the animals and the people. Um, even like, so I've spent time in Greenland with the Inuit and their, their respect for the animals, for the polar bear, for the seal, not but just, just because they, the, the, the animals were there before the people, but it's there's a relationship between the two, there's a knowledge between the two, there's a passage of knowledge spiritually between the two. Um, and just as an example, if, if, if they would go out and they would harvest um, a seal or even a, pol a polar bear, it's very important that the fact that they use the word harvest, not hunt. Harvest means like a crop, that if they treat the animals with respect, if they take what they need, not for their greed, the animal will come back year after year after year. And they, and they actually don't see as the human taking the animal, but actually the animal giving to the people. So if they would um, take a polar bear, which would be one polar bear a year, the Inuit would be allowed. The animal is, tre is treated with such respect. It's, it's incredible. The, 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 the fur of the animal would be given to one member of the family. The certain cuts of the meat would be given to another member of the family. And then the head would be given to an elder because it signifies wisdom. So there's so many things like that to do with, with wildlife and the people that are... They're not two separate things, they're just connected in one cycle. And that is, that's what I learned from spending a lot of time with these people. That's so beautiful. Um, one thing I was curious about with you guys as storytellers, and you both have, in addition to your work, like you have significant social media followings, and you talked on this being climate crisis, that it's very urgent, COP is happening now. Um, the work that you do, how do you get the tone right that you can tell a story that anyone wants to read or watch or listen to and you've got these beautiful seals playing in the water and that's really cute and obviously you can take amazing photos of these amazing people all around the world but you're telling really difficult stories. You know, climate crisis, um, First Nations people who currently do live in really bad conditions and obviously went through really horrific times from... Like, how do you, how do you get the tone right that you get all the messages across but from a storytelling perspective, it's still a, a good story that you can present on TV and share in a magazine. Yeah, I think um, based on what I said was, um, is when you're spending time with, predominantly for me, spending time with those groups, is asking them 
questions, just keep asking. What, and also saying, what I remember asking one question with a lady who was called um, Freda, who was on the side of, we, we pulled up on the river and we'd, 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 we'd literally just spent a few hours there and she came out to greet us. And in the end, we were, she, we were walking through this birch thicket and she was showing me all these uses for birch trees and birch bark and sap and everything like that. Anyway, she was saying to, I, no, so I asked her, what would you like me to share? And she was like, can you just share about the salmon? The salmon are no good anymore. The salmon that are coming up the river, they're no good for us to eat anymore. Um, and I was like, how would, you, how would you like me to share that? And she was just, you know, just speak from the heart and everything like that. So um, I always try to ask whoever I'm interviewing or the story that I'm trying to tell w- w- with some of these people is like, well, how do you want me to share it? What do you want me to say? I can put my, my, my way of writing and my photography on like a spin on it. But it's more, I want to tell an authentic, organic, real story, a bookmark in time, and I want that to be real. And, I, and the information I want everybody to read is to be as real and as factual as it can, and I don't care how hard-hitting and raw that could be, because it's real, and that's what it's all about. It's, yeah. a, it's a killer question. It's hard to do, really, really hard to do. The tone is everything. I've definitely got it wrong in the past, and actually in putting together a story like kind of like what you're saying by asking those questions and doing that research the tone changes almost because you go in with a big impact idea and you know we need this to stop and then you learn about for example salmon farming in scotland massively important to the livelihoods of so many communities up there so i'm not going to go charging in saying all salmon farming is bad it's part of a global industry it needs to have balance such a hard thing to do um i think one of the things that is a really kind of good crutch if you like is having solution-based approach that when you watch that film um you can come away with a positive however damning or 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 scary that story that you're telling it is um there is a next step and it may not be everything's going to be great but it could be something that the audience can go away and read about or learn about or or take away and act on themselves um so solution-based kind of um, a, a, approach to a film is probably what I aim for, but it's hard. It's a really good yeah, question. It's really hard, and I think you've got to um, approach it with a level of sensitivity, yes. knowing the subject, respecting who you are, who you're with, understanding that you, what you're saying could impact a lot of things. So I think just a lot of respect and a lot of sensitivity is is good. Can I ask you a question, Ian? Because I think a lot of people, on, and for you as well, actually, on these... Uh, <laughs> but the amount of... How much pre-planning do you have to do for your big expeditions? Because I think that's the bit that everyone misses. I'm sure you spend so many months putting in the planning for something like that. Yeah. Um, those two trips took longer than a year to plan. Um, the, the reason why they take that is because it's just more of the logistics of working out are we going to carry food? Are we going to put? Are we going to send food ahead? Are we going to? Um, how are we going to get water? What equipment do we need? Are we going to? Is there going to be a change of discipline from hiking to canoeing? Um, the the most important thing I think with those, the reason why they took so long was to first of all plan the journey, make sure we've got. Um, the right idea for the journey um, we're making the right contacts where we've got the contacts and the interviews set up so we can then go in and interview people the right people um, yeah they, they do take a long time and actually the some of the questions we get asked a lot is, is like how do you fund these trips etc 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 and most of the time you're using your own money and maybe with help uh, like we have from John for Sidetracked, you know, we got a little bit of help from there and maybe a couple of clothing brands. But a lot of the time, you're using your own money. For the first 
trip in the Yukon, I quit two jobs. I came back without a job because I believed so much in that, that trip and that journey that that would change my life. I just had an innate feeling, a sense that that would change my life, that trip, and it did. Um, and I was willing to, to do what it, what it cost to, you know, to quit two jobs to go and do it, and I'll just make it work when I got back. Um, and time, not everybody's got the time to do this. People have careers, jobs, families, commitments, mortgages. Um, I was renting at the time, so I paid three months rent and off I went, you know. So these things are really difficult. Um, you have to really think about the impacts on your life, the impacts of those around you, if you've got dependence on your work, your careers. Um, but I believe if, you know, you don't have to go away for three months, you could go for two weeks or one week and stuff like that. If the story's good enough, the story's good enough. Um, and if it moves you and it empowers you and you want to make a positive change like we're talking about today, then you could go away for the weekend and tell a story. So they do take a while to plan these trips. Yeah. yeah. And in that, I guess, pre-planning now more and more so, it's great to hear a lot of people putting in, well, what is this film? Where's it going to be distributed? Where's it going to go? What does that mean? What's the long-term effect of that? Is it, you know, specific to a, to a campaign or a, a move to try and change a legislation or whatever? Um, I think there's a lot of that that people um, perhaps miss in like putting something together, like what you guys do and in, in, in wildlife film especially. Yeah, I think that's definitely a challenge that we're seeing, I think, out of the younger generation of adventurers, that they understand that if you're going to get on a plane and go to the other side of the world, there has to be a purpose. Yes. Mm. And we just don't see like holiday style adventurers anymore, which I think is, is really cool that people are challenging themselves with why am I doing this and what am I going to bring back? Let's just say a huge thank you to Ian and Lizzie, and thanks so much for coming. Thank you. Amazing. We hope that's inspired you and given you some proper, actionable insight. Please look out for the next episode, and if you haven't signed up for the film versions, please visit the Blue Earth website at blueearthsummit.com. Earth Summit is happening from the 11th to the 13th of October 2022 in the great city of Bristol. We believe in the power of the outdoors to improve our health and further establish purpose-led business. Register your interest at blueearthsummit.com.